0: Like I said, we're going to be going through the the book of Acts verse by verse. And last week, if you remember, Pastor Joseph was sharing with us, we ended with this beautiful picture of the early church in Jerusalem coming together in unity. And it could have been really easy to just say that, yeah, that we love one another. How many know it's really easy to say you love somebody? But they fully demonstrated it. You see, they sold everything that they owned. And laid it at the apostles' feet so that everybody was taken care of. You see, selling everything you own, all of your valuable possessions, and giving it to those less fortunate than you is a demonstration of love and sacrifice. They didn't just say they loved one another. They showed it. And here in the early church in Jerusalem, it seemed like that was kind of the norm. That was what they were doing. They were all doing it to support one another. Now this is not to say, and you guys can say amen right out of this, this is not to say this was the command for every church. You guys can breathe deep now. I'm not going to ask you to go home and sell everything. Um, you don't see this behavior in any of the other churches in the New Testament. This wasn't a common behavior. This just happened in this uh, this church here. And um, we're actually going to see as we read today that the generosity that these folks were showing was actually of their own free will. It wasn't a command by the apostles. It wasn't something they had to do. It was just out of the natural response to the love that they had received from Christ, what Christ had done from them. And this was what they wanted to do. It was according to their their will. They weren't forced or obligated to it. In other words, not only were they willing, but it was their pleasure to do so. So however, while selling all that you own and giving it into the body of Christ is not a commandment, this type of love is commanded, amen? You see, we're to love one another so much that it's one of our defining characteristics. What does the scripture say? They will know you by your love for one another. And how would people know us by our love if all we did was say it, right? There has to be something to show for it or people wouldn't be able to see it, right? So what does that look like for us? You know, sometimes it takes the form of giving generously to those who are in need, just like the early church. Sometimes it it takes the form of helping somebody over the weekend move, even when your favorite team is playing. Sometimes it takes the form of praying for one another. Actually, I would argue that it always takes the form of praying for one another. And sometimes it's just being there for somebody in their time of need, You know, one of the things that I've always said, and it's the reason why we still do after uh, March 31st, we're going to be a church for 11 years. And, And it's the reason why we still all get together and meet at Jan's house once a month to get together, because we're a family. That's what families do. Families who love one another, they get together, they spend time together, they're there for one another, and that's why we do it. So I would encourage all of you to come tonight. It's just a great opportunity to get to know one another. And the reality is, as families get together. The truth is, with your regular family, you'll go home with, with some of them you don't even like. I bet you like everybody here. It should be easier. <laughs> Hallelujah. The truth is, is I imagine that you can think of all sorts of ways that you can demonstrate love to one another. And it certainly should be demonstrated by each and every one of us. Amen. Amen. Well, Let's go ahead and get started. Now, I have to be honest with you guys. This is one of the more difficult stories in the Bible, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. If I had been thinking when I was writing the schedule for who would be preaching, I would have made sure Pastor Joseph was preaching this section. Hallelujah. You see, the thing about going verse by verse through the Bible is you don't get to skip the hard parts. You know, it's really easy to write a topical message, and certainly we do from time to time. We, we alternate between going through books of the Bible verse by verse, and some of these bigger ones like this one I think we're going to finish sometime in, in February of next year. That's when we'll finally make it through the book of Acts. Um, but certainly we, we do a little bit of both, but we don't get to skip the hard parts because when I'm writing a message with a specific topic, I get to cherry pick which scriptures that I want to use. Now, I try to be responsible and make sure that I'm not using scriptures out of context and make sure we're using them appropriately. And But uh, when you're reading it verse by verse, you can't skip the hard parts. And man, this is this truly is a tough story. And the reason being is because it's one of the more difficult stories for me to reconcile with what I know of God. If you guys have read this story, you know what I'm talking about. But what we're going to do today is we're going to work our way through it in the light of what the scripture tells us of judgment, God's wrath, and his character. You see, you're going to see a little bit of inside baseball on how I think through stuff in scripture today. Normally, you only get to see that on Wednesday. If you ever want to see me ponder my way through stuff and talk about how I come to the conclusions I come to, come on Wednesday nights for a Bible study. But today, you're going to get a little sneak peek. So let's start with who were Ananias and Sapphira? They were a couple involved in the early church. They were likely believers. They were part of this first group who believed, put their trust in Christ. They're part of the early church and what's going on there. They're seeing everything happen. And uh, But the problem is, is, is they wanted to take advantage of this outpouring of generosity by the early church members. And I don't mean like they wanted to be on the receiving end. They wanted to be known as one of the people that gave a bunch. You know, they wanted that pat on the back to say, look what I did. Look how much I gave. They conspired together to look like they were generous as even Barnabas we're going to read about Barnabas he's the one that sets the trend he sells some property gives all the, the money to to the Apostles so that they can use it in the church and uh, they saw what happened he, they must have been getting some accolades people were pretty excited about his generosity and they went you know what I want people to pat me on the back like that I want people to look at me and see how awesome I am because I gave a lot of money so they decided to to sell some land some property. But they didn't give all the proceeds, but they said they did. So they sold the land and they went to the apostles. Look, we sold it and here's everything, but the truth is is they held some back. Their giving was not because they were responding to the generosity of Christ's great gift, nor was it their love of the brethren. It was because they wanted to be seen as something more. So Acts five one through two says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira they sold a the piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and only brought a part of it and laid it at the gospel's feet. He sells the property, gets the money, gives some of it to the apostles, but he tells them that it's everything. And it wasn't just him, him and his wife conspired together to do it. So you can see that this wasn't about Christ's love, this wasn't about being generous, this was all about looking good in the eyes of the rest of the church. They were looking to increase their social standing or maybe even their influence in the early church um, with some sort of hopes of great gain because of what they were doing. And the problem is is that it wasn't even some spur-of-the-moment failure. How many know that sometimes you do dumb stuff? And and when it happens, you you realize it, and you repent, and you get back up. That's not what's happening here, because they're actually planning together to to try to, to pull the wool over the apostles and the early church's eye. This was something that was carefully planned. So in Acts 5, verses 3 through 4... It says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So Ananias shows up. stands in front of Peter. He's got the money that he was going to give, and I imagine he has explained how he has sold his land just like barnabas he's brought all the proceeds to give to the church and in a moment we're going to see that it's not just peter there um it actually says in the last verse here he says he laid it at the apostles feet and i'm not sure if that's plural or possessive (laughs) i don't know if there was more apostles there or not but I do know there were some other men there. And it's more than likely that the apostles were together, right? They're teaching and preaching. So we have the apostles there. We have the people that they're ministering to. Matter of fact, in a little while, it's going to say uh, that, the, the, that the young men have a part to play. And if it's going to specifically denote that there's young men, that probably means there's old men there too. So we have a pretty good group of people there, right? So it appears there's at least some small crowd that's gathered who gets to hear how generous Ananias and Sapphira were. But the thing is, is Peter's not unaware of this scheme. He's not unaware of what's going on. So when he comes to give his gift to Peter, Peter calls him out. Now, as I'm studying this, I'm looking at the commentaries. Some commentaries just pass over how Peter knew this. Some say that the Holy Spirit told Peter that this wasn't all the money that the property sold for. Now, for me, I like to look at Scripture and understand it for what it is, and it doesn't seem real clear to me how how Peter knew. It was most likely the Holy Spirit, because we're going to see later he has some knowledge that it had to be the Holy Spirit that told him. But for all I know, Peter was a friend of the guy that bought the land, and he just told him what happened. But nonetheless, Peter understands that this isn't all the money. It's clear that he knows that Ananias is lying and his wife is lying and it's not the full amount and he's trying to pull the wool over the early church's eyes and the apostles' eyes. Now when I had when I was younger and I would read the story I had it in my head that the problem was that they didn't give all the money. I always thought that that was why Ananias got in trouble. I always thought that because I didn't really read the Bible all that well. It actually is pretty clear why it's an issue. But uh, when you're young and dumb and and don't read your Bible all that much, you can get uh, confused by all kinds of stuff. I would encourage you to read your Bible. It will help answer most of your questions. So, But I thought that because they didn't give all the money, that's why they were in trouble. But that actually wasn't the case. The truth was, is the sin wasn't keeping back the money. The sin was lying about it, saying that it was all of it. And we see here that Satan has gotten involved with Ananias and Sapphira. That's what, Jesus, or what Peter says. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, I don't know what was going on in Ananias and Sapphira's life where the devil had an inroad. But it's clear that he did. Satan was influencing him to do this. Maybe there was some sin that they were going on in their life that they hadn't let go of, that they hadn't fully repented of, and that and let the door open for, for sin to get in. Maybe it was just the, the, the raw temptation of the influence and fame that they would get for doing this that, that so enticed them to move forward in sin. But the fact that Peter asked, listen, why has Satan filled your heart implies that Ananias and Sapphira should have been walking in victory over Satan. And when we talk about it, it's not real clear whether they were. It doesn't say yes or no, they were believers or not. But they were involved in the early church. And I think if, if Peter wouldn't ask this question if they weren't a believer, right? You don't have to ask unbelievers, why is Satan influencing you? It's because they're unbelievers, sure. right? So I, I think, at least to some level, they, they, they were believers. They had put their faith in Christ. And, and Peter's like, why are you letting this happen? You should be walking in victory. And this should be a warning to all of us for the dangers of sin in our life. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus, and intentionally put on the new self every morning. That's what the scripture says, put on the new self so that we can walk in victory that has been provided to us by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We should be able to walk in that. The scripture says, resist the enemy and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Obviously, there wasn't any resisting going on because he didn't flee. Instead, he was influencing them. And when we allow sin to have an inroad, we allow the devil to have an inroad in life. As we're going to see, the consequences of that can be disastrous in your life. Peter points out to Ananias the sin that he is committing. You see, it's not that he didn't give all the money. It was the issue, right? He says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? So it's not when he had the land they didn't have to sell it it wasn't a requirement for them to sell it so peter says when you had the land wasn't it yours and then once you sold it didn't all the money belong to you anyway like you didn't even have to give the money he says so why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart to lie to man and to lie to god you see this is all evidence that the giving that was happening in the in the early church was all voluntary it was because the people wanted to it was the natural response to what God has given them it's why when when we receive the offering I, I especially when, when I'm doing it, I am always want to point out, like if you're giving out of some sense of obligation or duty or any of that stuff, then put your money back in your pocket. You're missing the point. We don't give because we have to or it's a requirement. We do it because that's the natural response to the one who has given us everything. Amen? So the problem that he has is that he wasn't just lying to man, but also lying to God. You know, a lie is bad enough, but apparently lying to God is much more severe. And now, now here's where the tough part comes in. Acts 5, 5 through 6, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. When Ananias heard these words, when it was pointed out to him, the great sin that he committed, he immediately died. Now, I don't know about you, but this seems pretty harsh. <laughs> but you have to understand what is going on here. This is the early church. This is the church trying to get off the ground. You know, there, there isn't millions and millions and millions of Christians all across the world at this point. There's only a few thousand believers at this point, and, and, and God said he would build his church and nothing would stand in the way. God cannot have Satan trying to influence this early church. And I think this is to serve as an example of us so we don't fall into that same trap, letting Satan into our churches and letting... The, the reality is, is that we have to make sure that we're not letting sin into our lives you know, I I, I thank God. I, I if I'm if I hazard to guess, I would imagine most of us have lied to God at least once in our life, and you're still here, so the same punishment didn't fall, or the same reaction or consequence didn't fall upon you. And I thank God for that. That we have the opportunity to repent, to get back up. But I think it still serves as an example to us how severe of a thing this is. So this is the early church. We, God couldn't let Satan get involved and have influence in, in his early church. It needed to, to remain strong so that it can grow into what it is today. The, the, the reason why the church has never been squashed is because God is growing it, God is protecting it, God is building it, amen? But this is where, for me, this passage is so difficult. So let me work. now. Now we're going to see some of my my inside baseball as I work my way through this, because to me, the implication is that God kills this person, right? Is that, is that what everybody else reads this and that's what they understand? That's the easy way to read it, right? They did something stupid, God dealt with it. And, and it's, it's, it's some sort of wrath of God or judgment of God being passed down on them. Now, the reason why that's difficult for me to read it that way is because it's not in alignment with what I understand of the gospel and what I understand of the judgment of God. I believe that the Scripture is clear that sin, the payment for it, has been dealt with with Jesus Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, there were active judgments of God, where God put His hand in the situation, and, 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 and people were judged and dealt with. But after Jesus that wrath has been poured out into Jesus. Jesus has taken care of the punishment for that sin, the penalty for that sin. Amen? John 3.16 it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, that the, the payment was paid in full, and it's not just for those who were going to believe. The payment was paid in full for everybody's sin. That's what the Scripture says. God so loved not just those who would soon believe, but God so loved the world that he sent his Son. Jesus died for the entire world, all the sins of the world, even those who would ultimately reject him. Romans 5, 6 through 11 says this, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So who did Christ die for? The ungodly, right? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So did God die for the righteous or did he die for Sinners. Since therefore we have not been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So when you put your faith in Jesus, you are saved from the wrath of God. And ten, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the so while we were enemies, reconciled to God. Are you seeing the, the, the picture here that Jesus died not for believers, but for the unbelievers, for the world. And he says, so much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Christ's death and payment for sin was for the ungodly. He died for us while while we were still sinners, those who would believe and those who wouldn't. While we were enemies, not yet reconciled to God, Jesus came to reconcile us. So the the wrath of God and the judgment for sin have already been poured out on his son. In one sense, sin has been completely dealt with, at least the legal requirements, the penalty, the payment for sin. So any further judgment for sin... Which seem to indicate to me that what Jesus did wasn 't enough, and I think that would be a huge problem for all of us if that was the case. How many know what Jesus did was enough? so God doesn 't have to further uh, put further judgment on us for sin because Jesus paid it all, and personally i don 't believe that the world is going to be receiving any more active judgment from God until Jesus comes back, until we're in those final days in Revelation. This is why I think when people see a hurricane hit the U.S. and they claim that it's some sort of divine judgment of God, I think they're wrong. The thing, and on top of that, if you're going to, to make the argument that God is judging sinners with those things, then why do these judgments impact believers just as much as they're sinners, as sinners, right? That the only argument that you could possibly make is that, that maybe unbelievers could still receive judgment because they haven't received Christ yet, even though, like I said, I think that's wrong. I think sin has been dealt with from a legal perspective by Jesus Christ, and we just have to receive that forgiveness. But even if that were the case, then why do all these natural disasters happen, impact unbelievers and believers equally? I mean, that hurricane, the, the, the biggest one I think that, that people would say, that hurricane that happened in New Orleans, that, that was supposed to be a judgment of God for something or another. I forget what for. But the red light district, arguably the worst place in New Orleans, re- remained pretty much unscathed. So either we have it wrong or God's got terrible aim when he's trying to judge people right but there is another type of, bu- of judgment described in the bible that i would refer to as passive judgment And uh, there's no biblical terms for this. This is just, like I said, you're seeing inside baseball, how I'm working through this stuff in my head. So I see there's active judgment when God physically puts his hand to something, and passive judgment, which I think does happen. And here's where it's described. Romans 128 says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. I think when you reject God, he will step away. You know, God is a perfect gentleman. He's not forcing his way into your life. And if you want to live that way, he will step away and let you do it. He's not going to force you to be a Christian. He's not going to force you to be saved. He's not going to force you to live according to his will. And when that happens, you start incurring all the consequences of sins full force. Basically, God steps back and leaves you with the consequences of your choices. The natural result of your own debased actions caused terrible consequences in your life, right? You murder somebody, you go to jail. That's not a judgment of God. That's a consequence of your action, amen? You fool around on your wife and she leaves you, that's not a judgment of God. That's a consequence of your stupidity. The, the, the consequences of our actions come in, so there's a difference between judgment and consequence, and I think as God pulls his hand away, there comes a point where it's pulled back so far that you you are no longer under any protection from him. And the enemy is able to have his way for you, way with you. And I personally think that's what happened here. I look back at my life, even before I was saved, I can still clearly see God's hand in it. God's still moving in my life, even before I was saved. But w- when you make choices to reject God and basically not allow God to work in your life and to, to push him out, I think there are some consequences you're going to deal with as a result of the choices you make. And then, as I said, uh, for lack of a better term, a passive judgment is God says, okay, do what you want. This happened in my life when when God was so patient with me for so long. And finally, one day he said, you know what? Go ahead, have at it. Do it yourself. And I we ended up Filing for bankruptcy. My wife almost left me. My world fell apart. And it wasn't because God was was judging me actively. Everything that happened in my life was my own fault. But God just said, okay, have it your way. And I think that happens to us sometimes. And I think that's what happened here. So let me explain it a little more simply. When Ananias breathed his last, it's clear that Peter and the other church members didn't kill him, right? it's not like peter's like i'm going to show you for lying to the church and you know stabbed him in the gut didn't even go after his ear or anything that was that was earlier he already got in trouble for that so that leaves three options if peter and then the church didn't kill him, that leaves three options it was just his time well that's unlikely due to the fact of the timing that happens and also um spoiler alert same thing happens to sapphire in a few hours <laughs> So it's unlikely that that's the case. Option two, it was God that did it. And as I just described, I don't think this is a valid option because adding additional judgment to sin would indicate to me that additional payment is required for sin. And I don't think that's the case. God is not judging us even more because all judgment has fallen on Jesus Christ for sin. Amen? So the third option... I think it was the enemy. First Peter 5, 8 through 9 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we have the 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 enemy is roaring around like a lion, waiting to pounce on those that he can. He's seeking people to devour. John 10.10 says a thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Like I said, in my own life, I've seen the hand of God working even when I wasn't fully following following him. But what would happen if God fully stood back? The enemy would have full access to steal, kill, kill. Wow, I'm going to just rhyme all the words. To kill, steal, and destroy. To kill, steal, and destroy. He would have full access. And, and that's how I understand this story. Because the rest of it doesn't, it's, it doesn't match up with what I know of God and his character and judgment. And now that I've explained how I understand this difficult situation for myself, like I said, reconciling God's judgment with the death of Anastasia and Sapphira, I will tell you this. I wouldn't die for this theory, right? So the gospel, the truth of the gospel, like you have to have Jesus Christ to be saved. I would die for that. Like I'm not confused about that. That is This This is what I've worked out of my mind. It's how I reconcile who I know of God and what's happening. But I wouldn't die for it. If somebody would come to me and show me a better way to understand it that is... That is um, uh, in line with who, who God is in the scripture and the judgment poured out on Jesus, I'm open to that. I don't know if you guys know this, but I don't know everything. But if, if there's a, a better way to understand it, I'm open to it. But this is how I understand it now. And this is how I've worked through what seems like a difficult situation. And I hope that's helpful to you as well. Was that helpful at all? Let's just see how I thought through it. Does that make sense? And the next thing we see that happened after he falls down, breathes his laugh, is a, last is a, a great fear it fell over everybody who heard the story. You see, I think what's happening is now they're understanding the seriousness of lying to the brethren in God. And I think the point of what happened here is was just to stop this behavior in his tracks. You see, I think God accelerated the pulling his hand back because it needed to be dealt with quickly and swiftly so Satan couldn't have an inroad in the church. Letting Satan have an influence in the early church would have been detrimental to the growth of the early church. And now he wouldn't. Amen? And then finally, the young men show up and they take Ananias' body a way to be buried. So, then, about an interval of three hours later, that's how I was so specific about Sapphira, would, Sapphira would suffer the same fate three hours later. He says, uh, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. So, three hours later, Sapphira shows up. And Peter tests her to see if she was involved in the lie. So I, I guess it could have been that it was all Ananias is doing. And he, he, uh, did something without was without his wife knowing, I know none of you men here ever do anything without your wife knowing, but some men do that stuff. So, uh, maybe that's what's happening here. But, uh, she hadn't heard what happened to her husband yet, so when asked, she tells the story they made up. She basically outed herself as a co-conspirator in this in this lie that was told to the congregation. So then in verses 9 through 10, Peter calls her out as well. It says, "'But Peter said to her, "'How is it that you have agreed together "'to test the spirit of the Lord? "'Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband "'are at the door, and they will carry you out. "'Immediately she fell down at his feet "'and breathed her last.'" And when the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. So Peter calls her out and says, why are you trying to test the spirit of the Lord? You see, the idea here kind of being portrayed is this Ananias and Sapphira were trying to see how much they could get away with without consequence. We're warned multiple places in Scripture not to test the Lord. Exodus 17, 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa, which is the verse we just read in Exodus. Matthew 4, 7 and Luke 4, 12. Both are Jesus speaking, saying, Again, it is written, You shall not put your Lord God to the test. Putting God to the test um, it 's pretty clear' it's something we shouldn 't do and that seems like what 's happening here they're they're, they're they're new believers and they 're trying to see what they can get away with and kind of straddle the line and see what they could do and and uh, Peter calls them out for putting the Lord to the test We were just talking in Bible study Wednesday night we were talking about how a lot of times new believers try to see how close they can stand to sin without touching it which I would highly not recommend, run from sin, stay away from it, don't see how close you can get. But here they're even testing how much sin they could get away with before there would be consequences to their actions, before God would take notice. This is not the way you want to live your life, amen? And so Peter sees that she acted the same as her husband, and he understood that she would suffer the same consequences this is where I said that at, th- at least this part, the Holy Spirit had to have let Peter know because there's no way Peter could have known that that they would be carrying her out the same as her husband. But he prophesied that, and it's, it's true. She immediately breathes her last, and as soon as the men get back from burying her husband, they find that they had to do it all again for her. I wonder what happened when they walked back in and they found her like, oh, we just filled it in. Like anyway, after this all happens in verse eleven, it says, great and a great fear came upon the whole church, and upon all who heard of these things." You see, once the word had gotten out of what happened, the church had a great fear come upon it. And I'll be honest with you, church. I think this is the uh, type of fear that we should adopt as well. We need to have a proper understanding of the weight and consequences for sin. Sin is far worse than we ever tried to give it credit for. We go through our lives making up excuses and classifying sin. Say, so, oh, that wasn't that bad. I mean, that was just a little sin. It's not, it wasn't that big of a deal. Pastor Wayne, why is it so, such a big deal that this happened? We, we classify sin as small, never underestimating the full weight and consequence of that sin. Do you understand that Jesus would have had to give his life to pay for even the smallest of sin as we classify it. Light can have no fellowship with the dark. There is no sin that is small enough that God can overlook. And I think if we understood the weight of sin, or even the ones we try to brush off and think of as not such a big deal, they really are because every single one required Jesus to die to pay the penalty for. Sin is not inconsequential. Church, you weren't saved so you could sin. You were saved and born again and given a new life to not only be forgiven of your sin, but to be completely free from sin. No longer under the power of it. And every single sin required God to give his own life. Let that sink in. God stepped off his throne and gave his own life to pay for your sin. It is not something we should take flippantly. It's not something that we should think of as inconsequential. Sin is a big deal. We should have a healthy fear of sin because the consequences of sin are severe. Amen? And I also want to address another issue because when I say we should have a healthy fear of sin and of the Lord, it shouldn't be driving you to despair. You shouldn't be uh, uh, leaving here today afraid that if you make a, a mistake that God is going to uh, ensure that you breathe your last. That's not the point, right? So I want to address another thing. I mentioned earlier, this seems pretty harsh. And uh, like I said, I think the reason why that the that this happened was to really deal with a, a an issue that could have derailed the early church. So, um, I would think, man, if they were saved, we talked about they were probably believers. Why didn't they have the opportunity to repent? And you know, when we think through this stuff, we have to understand that that God is over all things. His judgment is good. He's not making mistakes in this department. He is fully understanding the situation. So, you know, what are some of the reasons why they they maybe didn't have an opportunity to repent? Maybe God knew that they wouldn't. Maybe the influence that Satan could have gained in the early church was so great that God had to pull his hand back fully so that it could be dealt with. Giving them time to repent could have derailed the early church potentially. And as I said earlier, it seems they were likely believers. And if they were believers and, and this was just a, a bad decision, not a total walking away from the faith, how many know that, that every time you sin, you don't become unsaved, right? As long as you don't walk away from the faith, as long as you don't reject salvation, if you make a mistake and, and were to immediately get hit by a bus, you don't have to be in fear of, of no longer going to heaven and being with Christ. His salvation was more than enough. So when we look at this story, if they were believers and, and this wasn't uh, them having totally walked away from the faith or any of that, then, then they would still be in heaven. And I think some of these questions we're not going to get answers to until we get to heaven, right? This is me speculating. This is me thinking about these things. There's no answer for these things in the Scripture. We will find out one day. But I do know this for us today. If you're involved in some sin, repent. Get back up. Jesus died so that you would not only be forgiven, but you would be completely free. And if you get back up and then you fall down again, repent and get back up. Don't stay down. Intentionally living in sin, testing the Lord to see how long it'll be before you experience the consequence of that sin is just a dumb idea. So what can we learn from this story of Ananias? Far, like I told you, this is a tough story. And I'm, I'm, I'm walking you through how I think through it. And uh, maybe you disagree with me, and that's okay. But this is what I think we can learn from the story, no matter how you interpret it. One, you need to understand your, your motivations for giving, because that matters, And I'm not even just talking about money. I'm talking about your time, stuff, money, whatever you give, understand your motivations. Are you doing it out of obligation? Are you doing it for accolades, which is just essentially pride, right? If it's any of those, just put your money back in your pocket. You're missing the point. Because we give generously because he gave generously to us. It's just a response of thanksgiving and worship. That's one of the reasons why, when we do receive the offering, we're always talking about continuing in an attitude of worship. Giving is an act of worship, not just something Christians have to do. Amen. Something else we can learn is don't let Satan have an inroad into your life, because when Satan gets a foothold, how many know he doesn't in, doesn't tend to stop there? He just keeps trying to push and worm his way into your life, gaining more and more influence. It's a whole lot easier to stop it at the beginning and then finally don't mess around with sin because it is far worse than you can ever imagine amen amen and we just got a few more to go as we round out this section we're kind of done with ananias and sapphira but in acts 12 through 13 5, 12 13, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, and none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So the believers were gathering in Solomon's portico, and you remember this is actually where the lame man was healed. This is that back at the beginning of the book of Acts when, when uh, Peter and John says that, uh, you know, gold I don't have, but what I do have is this, get up and rise and walk. He's a man that was lame for 40 years, and he's healed. That's where it happened, and it seems like now this has kind of become the central hub of this early church here. So this is where they're all gathered. And while they're there, God is doing incredible things to the, through, the, through the apostles, Joseph, Pastor Joseph doesn't like it when I use the word incredible. (laughs) He says, uh, uh, he thinks that I'm saying it to say that it wasn't likely that it happened. I think it's, I I use it in the sense that it's amazing. It's a living language, Pastor Joseph. It changes over time. Hallelujah. God's doing amazing things. That's just to make Pastor Joseph happy. Amazing things. And uh, people are getting healed seeing signs and wonders people are getting saved there's evidence all around that god is moving but you notice that those who weren't believers they're kind of staying away one commentator, commentator said that uh when it says here none of the rest dare join them that it likely meant that no hypocrite or unbeliever joined them because of of what it had probably because of what they heard what happened with ananias and Sapphira, they didn't want to get get, get uh, wrapped up in that probably afraid of that or maybe if it was just the regular people of the city that were scared to come near them. I mean, the, the obvious working of God may have been intimidating to them. You know, you have to understand when people are seeing this stuff happen and, the, and it's pointing to the truth of what the apostles are saying, this is upending their world. It's changing most of what they believed in, whether they were Greeks or Jews. Everything changes when you put your trust in Christ. It's one of the reasons why I think that, that so many people actually resist putting their trust in Christ, because if they admit that that God is real, that Jesus is real, and that He's the only way to salvation, that means that their world, their life, has to change. How many you know that when you admit that's true, you can no longer live in sin and justify it? But regardless of what's going on, it says everybody was Thought very highly of the apostles and the group that was going there, they held them in high esteem. And then in verse 14 through 16 it says, More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick to the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by at last, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So then, in what seems like a contradiction, here it says, none of the rest dare join them, but more than ever, believers were added (laughs) to the Lord. You see, it may seem like a contradiction when Luke says that more and more are getting saved every day, but it seems like those who are at least genuinely seeking the Lord weren't staying away. They were going to see what the apostles had to say, and they were getting saved. They were getting healed, and God was moving powerfully. It says here that, uh, that, that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. that As Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on him. Now, you remember I've talked about healing in the Scripture, and I say that even in areas where it doesn't specifically mention faith as the catalyst for healing, there's usually some sort of indication that faith is being exercised. How many of you know that if you're just trying to get a shadow to fall on you, you're, you are expressing faith? Maybe a little misguided. They, they, they misunderstood where the healing was coming from, but they believed that God could work through Peter, and even if maybe just his shadow would touch them, they would be healed, and the people were so convinced that they're all just showing up. They're gathering everybody. I mean, every from the towns around Jerusalem, they're bringing all the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. So basically the sick and the demon-possessed in Jerusalem and all the towns around it, they're all bringing them to the apostles because they see that God's moving and things are happening. And notice what it says. It says that they were, they were uh, uh, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and most of them were healed. That's not what it says. It says they were all healed. Every single person that came to God was healed. And this is one of those things that um, we talked about a few weeks ago that, uh, you know, when I read the Scripture, uh, the way I understand it is that healing was purchased at the cross. We were restored to the point that Adam was when he lived before he fell. There was no sickness or disease it says uh, in the scripture that uh, by his stripes we're healed, and and like I said, if you if you look into that, not only in the the um, the Hebrew writing in Isaiah when it says that, does that can that also refer to uh, physical healing? Also, in, in Matthew 17, it actually points out that those scriptures reference uh, when when everybody got healed. It says this was to fulfill what happened right here in Isaiah. So physical healing, I believe, is part of what is purchased by the cross. We put our faith and trust in Christ to receive that healing. And, and we see it here. They, they show up, they believe, and they're all healed. Now, I understand that that's at odds of what actually happens in, in, in our, our world today. And I don't know why that's the case, but I know that I'm just going to keep believing the Scripture, what it says, laying hands on the sick, anointing with oil, and believing that God's going to do miracles. You see, church, what's happening here, preaching the gospel, people getting saved, demons being cast out, people being set free, that's what I want to see today. I want to see the power of God move in the same way. I want to see thousands being saved every single day. I want to see our, our, our church grow, not because I want to have more, more numbers, but because I want to see more people get saved, and the bigger we are, the greater sphere of influence we have, the more people we can reach, and the more people will get saved. If we start seeing miracles happening in the church because we're just crazy enough to believe that God will do what He says He's going to do, imagine what would happen if all of a sudden everybody that came to church here got healed from cancer. You don't think people would show up and want to know what's going on, and we could share the gospel with them. I want to see that happen here. I want to see God move and, and his power demonstrated just like what was happening here. The sick being healed, demons being cast out on the lost, being saved. Amen. And I pray that you would, you would uh, pray with me for that to happen because God can and will move like that again. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our head.